You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. God, we thank you for the love that you have poured out to us and the hope that is possible as we gather here in this season of Advent on this first Sunday. So as you're gathered, people, in your grace and in your faithful love, make your presence known. Come, Spirit, come. Open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear, our hearts that we would feel, our minds that we would believe the invitation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Father, be with me. Help me to just be buried in the shadow of the cross. May my mind and mouth be covered in its shadow. And if I go to say anything that isn't good or right, let the words fall to the ground at the mercies of the hearers. But if anything is said that is good and right, establish it deep within us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now be seated. Social media and news media, friends and family, preachers and teachers. We are surrounded by so many voices. Some of the voices are shouting declarations of fear, reminding us constantly of a world of violence. From Eastern Europe to the Middle East and North Africa, there are more than 45 armed conflicts, despite all we hear about is Ukraine and Russia or Israel and Palestine. These voices tell us that safety and security will come to us if we build bigger walls or invest in greater weaponry. Some of the voices are shouting declarations of hope, telling us morality will finally be legislated to society from the highest courts in the land. Some voices tell us that many of our rights and liberties will be sacrificed upon the altar of ideology. Harm will come to all of us, these voices say. These voices tell us that our country will lose its greatness and power as democracy unravels before our very eyes. We're surrounded by so many voices. Then there are the voices in our personal lives that tell us things won't get better. After all, it's been one thing after another. They tell us that we must grip and grasp instead of give because who knows what's happening with the economy. Some voices promise self-assurance and self-confidence, telling me that in the face of all that is negative, I should just be positive and optimistic. Good vibes. Admittedly, there is a lot I do not know about the claims of these voices. To me, some claims feel true while some feel misguided. Either way, what I do know is that all of them want all of our attention. They want us to see what they see, think what they think. They want us to do it based upon the data-driven information they have weighed and the feelings they have sorted out through their logic and reason. The preoccupation of these voices is a desire ultimately to manage life and control outcomes. And if by some chance these voices see that things turn around, they'll trade megaphones. The voices once shouting declarations of hope will shout declarations of fear. While the voices once shouting declarations of fear will shout declarations of hope. It's a constant cycle of loud voices ringing in our ears and echoing in our hearts. And if we discern it well, we'll learn that in the end, these voices are more prone to fear and anxiety rather than any kind of sustainable hope. And that becomes the kind of story they tell. Fear, anxiety, violence. 
And then almost unnoticed, along comes Advent. Midst of all the voices, the voice of the Christ child whimpers and cries out and reminds us of a different story. It's a story of the people of Israel and their promise-making God. The people of Israel, for the most part, have not been committed to sorting out the voices of logic and reason that surrounded them. Instead, they're committed to their peculiar stories Stories that speak of things like transformation, liberation, healing, and newness. All coming about in the form of miracles wielded by a promise-making God who does the impossible. Now at the center of many of these stories are the prophets who with their poetic voices offer words that are expressive and imaginative, disrupting, and comforting. And these prophets are Israel's poets. They are Israel's social critics. They're Israel's visionaries. Because poet prophets know that ongoing commitments to what we hear in the overwhelming amounts of data-driven information through reason and logic cannot transform people's hearts and cannot make people new. Poet prophets challenge the claims of what we see and what we think we see. Poet prophets open the world beyond logic and reason. Poet prophets open up tensions. Everybody say tensions. And contradictions. Say contradictions. This is what poet prophets open up. These tensions and contradictions that disrupt our logic. Poet prophets will not only remember, but they'll wonder, they'll imagine, and even propose a new way forward, steeped in a story of a God who does the impossible. So when Jews were faithful, they did not weigh data-driven information or sort out their feelings, hear me out, through logic and reason. They didn't do that. They listened to their poets. Matter of fact, scholars say that almost 75% of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, is poetry. <laughs> Jacob did poetry when he blessed his 12 sons. Moses and Miriam did poetry when God's people were liberated from enslavement. Deborah and Barak did poetry when the Canaanites were defeated. Hannah did poetry when Samuel was born. The Jews did poetry when David defeated Goliath. And Mary did poetry when she found out she was pregnant with the Christ child. All the mothers and fathers of Israel did poetry when they witnessed God do the impossible right before their eyes, even though they could not explain it. That is why they did poetry. The Advent is a season of poetry because it is the divine proposal from God to struggle between the voices of the truly poetic and prophetic that speak of the renovating presence of God and then the voices of the false prophets of our day with all their data-driven logic and reason that is designed to control outcomes and manage life on their terms. And if that's so, an Advent becomes an invitation to release control 
in order to receive the renovating presence of God who is able to do the impossible. So we heard from Isaiah this morning in our confession. Isaiah is this prophetic book. And I don't know if you know this, but it's framed by poems. In the beginning, in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4, there's a poet. It's a poem. It doesn't sound like poetry to us because it's not American English poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. But here's what he says. Listen to Isaiah. In the last days, everybody say last days. Okay, just want to make sure we catch that. The mountains of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and they will never again train for war. Mm. And then at the bit, at the end of the book, in Isaiah chapter 65, the poet prophet imagines this. Where the Lord says, For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. And in that city, in that new city, infants will not die. And houses will be available to all people. The wolf and the lamb and the lion will feed together. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. Can you imagine that? Can you, do you believe in it? That it's possible that that there will be a day where there will not be houselessness, death, and violence and war. It's all imagined. It's all imagined here in the scriptures. And it's proposed, actually. When you read it, it's a proposal because it's been promised by their promise-keeping God through the voice of the prophet Isaiah, whose book moves from they shall not learn war anymore to the end where they shall not hurt or destroy anymore. This disrupts the data-driven information of logic and reason that has been compiled and weighed by society. The question for us is, do we believe it's possible? And if we do, then do we believe that God is doing something about it even now? And if we have to have a help answering that question, then we just need to look in the middle of Isaiah's book. We're really toward the beginning, because it's a long book. Chapters 8 and 9. See, in chapters 8 and 9, it begins with the poet prophet speaking of a world that sounds much like our own, one covered in a cloak of fear, anxiety, and violence. The people of Judah have weighed the data-driven information, and all they see is only, and I quote Isaiah 8, 22, distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction. 
And then they're uncertain of where to look for help. So they look for help in false gods. They look for help in all the wrong places like political leaders. And so Isaiah 8, 19 to 20 unpack that for us. And they find themselves overwhelmed by the darkness that covers them. And they're looking for anyone and to anything for hope. And that is when the prophet begins to speak the same words we began reading this morning from chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. So in the middle of all that, Isaiah stands up and says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I know that means very little to us, but this is where it turns for us. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Does anybody remember where Jesus' ministry was? Right here. Here's where Jesus' ministry was. He goes on and says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. And as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. The staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now stay with it. With an imagination grounded in the history of a promise-making, promise-keeping God, Isaiah proposes a time when this great light will dawn on the way of the sea, which runs through Galilee. With this great light, the people of the land will grow and celebrate as if a great harvest has come. With this great light, the weapons of oppression will be lifted and all military gear will be burned as fuel for fires. With this great light, the people will be filled with hope and peace and joy while oppression and war no longer exist. This great light will come with the birth of the Christ child. See, we read these texts and we think, oh, that's heaven. But heaven came to earth and makes possible on earth what is in heaven. Does that sound like a prayer anybody prayed? Let your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. The poet prophet says to us, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. This is a birth announcement. A birth announcement that will turn the hopes of Israel and Judah as well as a whole earth. This birth announcement breaks the claims of the data-driven information and logic of unending wars, paralyzing fears, and gut-wrenching anxieties. However, the claims of this birth announcement will not rest on any government established by some other nation-state. It'll only rest on the government this specific child will bring to all of humanity. You see the word government, right? Because it has something to say to every life and all of life. And so the poet tells us that the child will be born, will be called a wonderful counselor because he will have wisdom, not just data-driven information and reasoning. The poet tells us that he'll be called mighty God because he'll demonstrate God's strength And the power to do the impossible, not just what data-driven information and logic tells us is possible. 
He'll be called Everlasting Father because he will act with compassion and mercy. Instead of this pick and choosing of a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps logic of benevolence and generosity. Come on now. He'll be called Prince of Peace because he will love even his enemies and offer a life-giving peace and restorative justice through his kingdom of grace instead of a death-dealing vengeance of punitive justice, which is what our society knows the best. See, this poet extends his arms and with one deep breath says, I'm not done. And is about to tell us something big. And he says this in the same text. He says, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And so when we hear this and we say, oh, it's just not possible. It's not possible a world without violence. It's not possible to live my life without paralyzing fear and gut-wrenching anxieties. It just isn't possible, Fred. You don't know the world. Advent says, no, embrace the fullness of that darkness, but don't forget the light. Amen. There's a light that dances in the darkness of that despair and says that the God who did the impossible still does the impossible. And Advent becomes a season where we're just invited to answer the question, do we believe it's possible? The passion and powerful love of God, of the God of heaven's armies, that's what, that's what Isaiah says, will personally make this happen because we can't. And it sounds absurd, but it's a promise of God, and God is a promise-keeping God. And the problem with the people of Israel is they had forgotten that when God makes promises, God keeps them. And so the poet prophet tells us of a new possibility of peace, of a possibility of wholeness, of well-being, where fear and anxiety no longer has to rule our hearts. It may be there, but it doesn't have to rule because hope has been revealed by the great light that is the Christ child who will become our king. And like every ruler, he will have to rule and sort things out according to his government. But his government is not like our government's. Contrary, and hear me out please, contrary to popular belief and religious sentimentality in a world where lines have been drawn, this ruler will make decisions that take sides. In a world where lines have been drawn, he will side with the poor instead of the rich. But he will call the rich to stand with him and share with the poor. He will side with the hungry instead of the well-fed and call the well-fed to stand with him and share with the hungry. He will side with those who mourn in humility instead of those who laugh in pride and will call those who laugh with pride to stand with him and share in the suffering of those who mourn. He will side with those who are meek and push to the margins of society by oppressive power and systems, not those who stand in the center of society with self-centered power. And he'll call those who stand in the center of power to leverage that power for the good of others. And in case you think I'm making this up, I'm almost quoting Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Come on, that's right. Come on. Preach it, Jesus takes sides because we draw lines. And the poet prophet Isaiah seems to ask us, Fred, where's your data-driven information now? 
That's, where's your logic that tells you power comes through domination? That vengeance is yours to take? That your rights matter above another's? Or that your well-being is more important than someone else's? Fred, where is that? The poet prophet is also asking, Fred, what do you say about the Christ child who will live, die, be resurrected, and will reign forever as he makes his promise-keeping presence known among his people? Fred, what do you say about his power that came not through domination, but through self-emptying love? Fred, what do you say about his proclamation that vengeance is his alone to take, never yours? Fred, what do you say about his willingness to give up his rights as the God of heaven to be born in a manger so you and anyone else who call upon his name can have the right to be called children of God? Fred, what do you say about his willingness to sacrifice his well-being for yours and call you to follow him and be willing to do the same? Fred, what do you say about his promise? That anyone who trusts him as king and lord can be made a citizen of his kingdom. And that kingdom will never be in trouble, never falter, never fail. Even if you die, you're just changing neighborhoods. And the poet prophet asks, I think, two of the most important questions of all. Do you believe this is possible? Do you believe that the God has given that God has given us a great light? Shining on the possibility of transformation, liberation, healing, and newness, all coming in the form of the miracle we remember during Advent. The arrival of God in the flesh, the Christ child called Emmanuel, the one known as God with us. And maybe the poet prophet is asking the grandest question of all. Can you live like you believe this is a promise God is able to keep? When we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we live like we believe it's a promise God is able to keep. When we treat others as we would like to be treated, we live as though we believe this is a promise God is able to keep. When we give generously to those who can never pay us back, we live like we believe this is a promise God is able to keep. But when we fall back and forget, we slide into the habit, the old habit of compiling information, the data-driven logic and reason, sorting out our feelings on our own terms. And we fail to remember that God is at work among God's people, of which I am one. We need to remember that through the coming of the long-expected King Jesus, God's people have been invited to join him in his work as watchful, waiting, and discerning witnesses to the world that is, that is, and is to come. We're invited to turn our lives toward the world that is coming. So if we are going to turn our lives toward the world that is coming, then we should live like we believe the world that is coming now and not wait for it to come later. 
So we work for the things of peace now. We work for inclusion and welcome now. We work toward generosity and hospitality now. We push back against systems of oppression and violence now. We tell the truth now. We don't wait. You know what else we do now? We name the darkness for what it is. The darkness in my heart, the darkness in the heart of those I love, the darkness that surrounds me, the darkness that is in the city, the darkness in the nation, the darkness in the world. We name the darkness for what it is. We don't run from it. We, we resist. We resist denial. And we refuse despair. Come on. We resist denial and refuse despair because we lit this candle saying, I believe hope is possible. I believe hope has come. I believe Christ has come. And Christ is coming again. So I will resist denial. But I will refuse despair. Because hope isn't just a decision. It is a practice. If it's not a practice, it is a dead hope. If it is a practice, it is a living hope. And when we gather here in the name of Jesus, this gathering, you here, that's a practice of hope. When you sing the poetry that you just sang, which by the way, you know you just sung poetry, right? Like that's a practice of hope. When you confess a confession, reading of scripture, because if you, if you confess something else, it's not a confession. That's a practice of hope. When you say to someone who's in this room, I'm glad you're here, and I hope to God you said that to somebody, and if you didn't, it's not too late. That's a practice of hope. When you call somebody by name, when you see them here, that's a practice of hope. When you come to the table of the Lord, and you come not alone, but in the company of the household of God, that is a practice of hope. But here's the thing we have to decide if we're going to live like we believe that God can keep God's promises. So when I come to this table, and I come to this table recognizing I don't get to choose who sits at this table, then will I live like I believe that's true and make sure that I welcome all people to my kitchen table? You with me? When I come to the God who's extended God's own love and care and hospitality to me, am I going to be willing to live as though I believe that that hospitality and care should be extended to others? When I come to the table where I remember the generosity of God poured out for you and for me and for all of us, will I live my life in such a way that I believe God can keep God's promises and extend a life of generosity to others? When I come to this table recognizing that God welcomes me just as I am, not as I should be, in the hopes that the presence of Christ can transform me into who I can be, I will look at myself in the mirror differently and see someone worthy of love and dignity and care. That is a practice of hope. Each Sunday, the Advent season is a practice of hope. And so we come committed not to a dead hope that is just an intellectual decision based upon reason and logic, but we remember the God who does the impossible. And in the words of Paul, 
Maybe we take the posture of Abraham and hope against hope. Where we resist denial, but we refuse despair. Because Christ has come. And Christ is our living hope. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.